0: Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Hasse, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today are the authors of the paper, Perioperative Nutrition Support in Cancer Patients, published in the October 2012 issue of NCP. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Maureen Heumann, Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Nutritional Science at University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, and Dr. David August, Chief of Surgical Oncology and Professor of Surgery at the University of Medicine and Dentistry, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. I'd like to start by asking Dr. Human and Dr. August if they have any disclosures on this topic that they would like to
1: share. I do not.
0: I do have
2: a disclosure. I do receive a salary from Nestle Healthcare Nutrition, however, that does not interfere with what I'm going to be speaking about today. Thank you both.
0: Again, thank you for joining me, and I want to just kind of delve into some of the topics that you discussed in your review. First of all, looking at nutrition screening, what suggestions do you have for screening or identifying those patients who are going to benefit the most from preoperative nutrition since many of our patients are going to be seen in an outpatient clinical setting?
2: So unfortunately, not all of the outpatient clinics here in the United States and abroad have a dietitian that will be able to screen every patient that comes in for treatment or to be seen by a physician. So the tool that you choose for your nutrition screening tool should be one with which your team, whether it be a nurse, a physician, a dietitian, or another member of the healthcare team is comfortable using. I recommend using the patient generated subjective global assessment tool. It is an easy to use tool. There are two components to the tool. There are four questions that are completed by the patient. And then there are several questions that are completed by the healthcare professional. And this tool has been validated for use by both dietitians as well as other healthcare professionals as well. The tool will provide you with a score which helps to kind of triage the patient as to their nutrition risk and provide some potential nutrition interventions based on that
0: score. The next question I want to ask really relates to enteral and parenteral nutrition. You mentioned in your paper that, of course, enteral nutrition is preferred over parenteral nutrition. You also mentioned that GI side effects can occur in the patients. So what symptoms do you see the most often and how can the symptoms be managed so that you can continue the enteral nutrition?
2: You are correct
0: in that there are sometimes side
2: effects that are seen when patients are getting enteral nutrition, whether it be a consequence of the enteral nutrition itself or a consequence of some aspect of their cancer treatment or the disease itself. Some of the symptoms that I would see most commonly would be things such as nausea, some bloating, diarrhea. And these symptoms are not necessarily indicators that the enteral nutrition needs to be stopped. Often we can manage these symptoms by temporarily decreasing the rate of the enteral nutrition If the patient was receiving a bolus enteral feed, perhaps we would switch to a continuous feed to see if that helps with the symptoms. Another option is always a pharmaceutical intervention. However, we would try to kind of alter the administration of the feeding prior to implementing a a pharmaceutical intervention.
0: Some of the other things that's been popular in practice today is different societies that put together guidelines to help us practice evidence-based medicine so Dr. Human, what similarities and differences do you see between the American Gastroenterological Association and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition guidelines about the type and timing of nutrition support in patients with cancer
2: so the American Gastroenterological Association position statement is similar to the Aspen guidelines related to the use of parenteral nutrition support in patients with cancer in that they recommend preoperative parenteral nutrition in patients that are malnourished and expected to be unable to consume nutrients for a prolonged period of time. There are some differences between the AGA and the Aspen guidelines as well. The AGA guidelines more strongly recommend the use of parental nutrition after surgery. And this may be a result of the recency of the paper. These guidelines have not been updated since two thousand one, unlike the Aspen guidelines that were last published in two thousand
0: nine. Speaking about nutrition support, I want to focus on the immune enhancing products. So Dr. Agus, how popular is the practice of having patients consume an immune-enhancing formula orally during the preoperative period?
1: So I think that's an important question. There are some small case studies that suggest that indeed that's a useful practice to provide enteral nutrition, oral supplements preoperatively operatively in, in defined uh, populations. I don't think it's all that popular because logistically it's difficult. Dr. Eumann alluded earlier to the fact that in many of the ambulatory care settings in the United States, there just is not adequate support for nutrition directed interventions, for professionals, dietitians, to be able to work in ambulatory care settings that often there just isn't the expertise to identify the patients who would benefit from preoperative support and then actually offer it and monitor it. So I think it's a a very important concept. I think it's something that could be used successfully, but it's just not being used adequately at this time.
0: So once you decide to provide immune-enhancing supplement to your patient, what do you think is the optimal length of time or the volume that is that should be used for consuming that supplement?
2: So we have several recent meta analyses that look at multiple papers that have explored the use of immune enhancing supplements in a oncology population, and these meta analyses seem to illustrate a benefit. Um, if the uh, supplements are used either preoperatively or perioperatively for a period of five days preoperatively and in the early postoperative setting. In terms of the quantities of the formula, the papers that looked at the use of these supplements um, looked at amounts or quantities of of formula in the range of 0.5 to one liter per day for five days preoperatively, and the quantities in terms of postoperative use ranged widely. If you look at the average though, most of the studies utilized 1,000 to 1,500 milliliters per day of the formula postoperatively. However, as Dr. August stated, preoperative use of the supplements does encounter issues in terms of the patient acquiring the supplement prior to use, and that is one of the barriers, I believe, for the immune-enhancing supplement wider use.
1: I would just add that I think that when you talk about the volume being administered, that it highlights the importance of nutrition assessment and then close monitoring of patients once they're receiving some sort of nutrition support, whether it be enteral or parenteral so that clearly a formal nutrition assessment needs to be carried out in these patients to determine what protein and calorie needs are and to use those as initial targets. And then once people are actually receiving these supplements or enteral nutrition support, then monitoring their tolerance so that if side effects come up, the formulations can be adjusted, the regimens be adjusted, to minimize those complications.
0: Do either of you have any other suggestions for the best approach for having patients consume these immune-enhancing supplements? Well, if the patient is consuming
2: an oral diet, I certainly would not suggest them to stop the oral diet and to replace it with the immune-enhancing supplements. I would suggest that they add these immune-enhancing formulas as just that a supplement in between their their meals. If the patient is receiving a tube feeding, though, it, I feel that you could switch the tube feeding to an immune enhancing formula prior to their surgery.
0: Dr. August, if we had a researcher who wanted to study the effect of utilizing these immune enhancing supplements in surgical oncology patients, what parameters would you recommend that they obtain to evaluate the success of the treatment?
1: So let me take that even one step back and emphasize that these immune-enhancing supplements are a little bit peculiar in that they're mixtures of a variety of individual substances that nobody's ever researched in detail what the optimal approaches to supplementation with glutamine or with nucleic acids or with arginine or with omega-3 fatty acids independently. There are some data but no extensive studies. The, The majority of the clinical studies upon which recommendations are based to use immune enhancing formulas in surgical oncology patients have been done with intact mixtures of those constituents without really looking at what the optimal mixture is. So I would say a a truly enterprising researcher might go back one step and ask the question, what's the optimal mixture of immune-enhancing constituents within a so-called immune-enhancing supplement? Having said that, I think that if one wants to look at the actual clinical population of surgical oncology patients with currently available immune-enhancing formulas, then one really needs to look at clinical outcomes, and that's one of the challenges of research in this area. We just don't have well-validated intermediary markers of efficacy of nutrition support. So one can look at protein balance. One can look at surrogate measures of immune function and the like. But in the end, it really comes down to does the patient do better or not? And in that regard, the most common endpoints have been overall incidence of perioperative complications, overall incidence of infection related perioperative complications, and then survival. And I think any serious study of these uh, formulas really has to have uh, important input from those three endpoints.
0: Thank you. The next question kind of ties into what you were kind of mentioning a minute ago. So, in addition to using these immune enhancing formulations to derive the possible benefits that you discuss in your article, how important do you think it is to provide adequate calories and protein to achieve those benefits? Or do you think there is one ingredient in the formulations that helps obtain those advantages in spite of the patient consuming adequate nutrition in terms of calories and protein?
1: Well, I, you know, at the at the beginning of the podcast here, I mentioned that I don't have any conflicts of interest. And if I knew of one magic constituent, uh, one uh, ingredient that would confer these benefits, uh, then clearly would have taken that to market and, and become a millionaire off of it. Uh, I think it's the total package of uh, adequate protein, adequate calories administered in a thoughtful way to avoid administration-related complications. And with that, the use of these immune-enhancing supplements that really leads to the benefits that have been seen in the clinical trials. And again, it's why it's so important to undertake a thorough uh, nutritional assessment before starting these formulas. The immune-enhancing substances really are supplements to the protein and calories uh, inherent in the formulas.
0: Do either of you have any suggestions for how we could best implement a perioperative nutrition protocol in our practices?
1: Again, I think that gets back to uh, something that uh, Dr. Eumann and I alluded to uh, earlier in the podcast, that there, there are fairly good data that suggest a multidisciplinary approach to nutritional care of complex patients is very important. So I think it involves first putting together the right multidisciplinary team, having a dietitian as an integral part of that team, having a knowledgeable physician as an integral part of that team, and then at least good support from pharmacy and nursing, if not a formal participant within the team. And that requires generating uh, resources uh, within an institution. And I think it puts the onus on the nutrition care specialists to be able to articulate the importance of nutrition support, to be able to articulate for administration the benefits not only in patient outcomes but in efficiency of care and, and reducing costs, and then also setting up some fairly straightforward data collection mechanisms so that as a program is implemented and moves forward, there's an ongoing documentation of the benefits of that program. I think that once you can begin to generate some modest support for implementing such a program, then there are multiple sources from professional organizations, such as ASPEN, about how that program can best function to meet the needs to the patient.
0: Thank you both for your discussion. Are there any other points or suggestions that you'd like to mention to our listeners?
1: No, it's been a pleasure participating.
0: No, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both, Dr. Heumann and Dr. August, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I invite all of our listeners to read their article in the October 2012 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The paper is entitled Perioperative Nutrition Support in Cancer Patients. Thank you for joining us today.